This is Defenders TV Podcast, episode 127, about The Punisher, episode 6, The Judas Goat. Welcome back, fellow Defenders. This is our episode 127 about The Punisher, season 1, episode 6, The Judas Goat. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hi, I'm one of your other hosts, John. And rounding out the group, all the way back from Hell's Kitchen, it's Chris. Welcome back to Ireland, Chris. We're not there with you, unfortunately, but You're not. we do feel a lot closer. Yes, we're at least an hour time zone difference versus the 5, 6 that we were. Mm-hmm. Not fun. <laughs> it was great fun. We we had to had to uh, cover up a lot of ambulances and New York sounds. It kind of added a little bit of extra realism to our podcast for a while. I think. Yes, it was very Hell's Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, and Hell's Kitchen has an apt moniker. That's all I will say. But anyway. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you're joining us for our episode six coverage for The Judas Goat, uh, The Punisher. Um, Thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, If you want to come over and join us on our Facebook group to chat with us about anything Marvel related, you can come over to facebook.com slash groups slash Defenders TV podcast where we chat all about Marvel and all about the fun news that's been coming out the last couple of weeks. We've had the Infinity War trailer, which is pretty awesome. And we have some Marvel Netflix news, which is that Jessica Jones will return next year on March 8th. A bit of a weird one there. March 8th is a Thursday. So the first Netflix show, I think, even of all of the other stuff, like Orange is the New Black and House of Cards, I think this is the first Netflix original that's going to be released on Thursday. Bit of a weird one. I'd love to know the rationale. Also, like we usually get it around March 18th, day Mm -hmm. after St. Patrick's Day, so I'm always a bit... I was prepped for that. Now I'm like, what? why? Why? Why earlier? A very special thanks to Rebecca over in our Facebook group who pointed out just after we'd recorded that March 8th is International Women's Day. That's the release date of Jessica Jones Season 2. It makes total sense to Thanks so much for that one. Also, while I'm recording a little fill-in, uh, Punisher Season 2, if you hadn't heard, has also been confirmed. That's probably the earliest we've had a confirmation for one of the Netflix sequel series or the follow-up series to one of the Netflix shows three weeks after release. So very, very quick. Uh, very impressed. So very excited to continue our coverage of Punisher and obviously go on to... Uh, Punisher season two, whenever that gets released as well. Yes, and we do also know that um, Kilgrave is somehow there in the second season. Mm-hmm. Maybe in her mind rather than in reality. I'm guessing flashbacks. I'm guessing flashbacks. But that's pretty cool. Quite a definitive end. David in, uh, Tennant having yes. you know been back in there. I reckon. Absolutely. Um, So if you want to make sure that you hear all of our thoughts about The Punisher and obviously leading up to Jessica Jones and Jessica Jones itself, uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast by going over to our website at DefendersTVPodcast.com. There's a whole subscribe section there that will allow you to subscribe on any good or evil podcast catcher. Just choose iTunes, Google Play, any of the other options that are on there for you, and you'll hear all of our thoughts about each of the episodes every week popping into your ear holes. Yes, and of course you can send your emails to us at feedback at defenderstvpodcast.com to send any of your thoughts, discussion points, comments on any episode of The Punisher so far or for the series as a whole. Um, Any feedback 
is most welcome. Yes, so boys, I think with all that beautiful intro, I think it's time we get on with it. Let's get on to the episode details. Derek, do you want to give us who wrote and direct this? Absolutely. This episode was written by Christine Boylan, a first-timer on The Punisher. Christine has written uh, three episodes of the short-lived Constantine series, which I must say I really, really enjoyed. It was fun to watch that. So she has worked in comic TV shows before, um, but this is our first episode over on Marvel with The Punisher. Cool. Yeah, I know. Uh, Constantine was one of those series that um, went before its time, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and also being kind of a fairly mystical, uh, mysterious, magical, mis- mystical kind of person within comics, um, seeing the Dr. Fate helmet there uh, at uh, Constantine's base of operations was pretty sweet. And I was hoping to, you know, we might get a glimpse of Dr. Fate there. Mm-hmm. Alas, no, and it was cancelled uh, way too soon. But John Constantine lives on. I understand he's going to be over on Legends of Tomorrow next season. So uh, he has still worked in all of the shows. I think he's been on Arrow and uh, now Legends of Tomorrow. So uh, so good to have at least yeah. John Constantine around. And there is a, an animated series. Exactly, yes. Uh, the uh, actor who portrayed Constantine in the TV show has now basically become Constantine. He is in the animated show. He's in Justice League Dark. He's... Uh, which was another animated film. He's, mm-hmm. he's now the voice. Yeah. Matt Ryan, long live and may he forever reign as Constantine. Absolutely, yeah, he's really good fun. Uh, this episode of The Punisher, though, to get back to it, was directed by Jeremy Webb, a British director, again, uh, having worked on Grange Hill, Doctor Who, and Downton Abbey. Uh, he has done a bunch of shows over the US, but now is in the Marvel Universe properly, in the extended side of the Marvel Universe, doing The Punisher. He's also directing Season 2, Episode 8 of The Fantastic Legion, a great X-Men-related TV show, and has done Episode 9 of Marvel's Runaways, uh, which is available on Hulu in the US, so I'm hoping we'll get to catch up on that one pretty soon i've been hearing great things about that yeah that's a good resume apart from one of them i think Drain um Hill. no no <laughs> big fan of that as a kid um you know i'm le- even- i'm gonna leave our listeners to guess which one write in with your answers on the back of a postcard or on the <laughs> facebook group which british show does our british co-host actually hate that is the question. It's, it's a little bit of a, a Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other, isn't it? With Grange Hill, yes. Doctor Who, and Denton Abbey. It rhymes with Rounds and Babby. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for this episode? Sure. Mike returns to Curtis to help treat Frank's infected wounds and fever picked up at Gunner's outpost in the woods. Frank starts to hallucinate, projecting death and destruction on both his and Micro's families. Curtis blames Micro for Frank's current condition and questions the difference that their crusade will have on Frank. Russo and Dina get closer, considerably closer. But post-Curtis, Russo begins to understand and learn Dina's motives, that she is investigating Frank, his former squad mate. Back at her office, Dina learns of Gunnar Henderson's death, and her and Stein investigate the scene of of the Killing Woods with local law enforcement and realise that Frank Castle is alive after pulling and analysing blood from the scene. Meanwhile, Lewis is arrested for confronting an NYPD officer while helping Vietnam veteran and fellow support group member O'Connor hand out pro-Second Amendment leaflets outside a courthouse. But after being bailed out by Curtis, Lewis learns that O'Connor lied about serving in Vietnam. Alone, angry, and feeling betrayed, Lewis confronts him in his apartment, and as their argument escalates, Lewis stabs him repeatedly to death. After his confrontation with Dina, Russo starts to broadcast a radio call to Frank and reaches out to Curtis for information after learning from Dina that Frank is still alive. 
But Frank approaches Russo and they meet up where Russo offers to give him a new identity and take him far from New York. But Frank doesn't take up Russo's offer following a visit with Micro's family. But back at the docks, Russo realises he ain't coming, informing William Rawlins, a.k.a. Agent Orange. So that was the big reveal that we've been waiting on. Yes, he is the Judas goat. Mm-hmm. Bleh. And that's a sheep, I suppose. Wee. That's a cat. I don't know. Look, I can't do goats. It's okay. somewhere in between. Yeah, somewhere like in that's... between. Absolutely. Um, but yes, I think we should get on to our war journal notes uh, for our top five. Before we do, I'm going to ask our fellow defenders to go over to DefendersTVPodcast.com and use our voicemail section to send in your uh, uh, best goat impression and we'll have it here in the next episode I like it that would be hilarious because uh, mine certainly doesn't sound like a goat um, <laughs> no. but, but yes let's get into our, our five biggest notes for the Punisher War Journal for this week John do you want to take us off with our point number one yes the harrowing wow this affected me um, the harrowing homecoming dinner were Frank's in a fever back at Micro's base, um, and he's obviously hallucinating, I suppose, or, or hallucinating within his dreams, his fever dreams, uh, of this kind of execution dinner uh, with Micro's family and his own. Um, yeah, I found this really kind of tough stuff. Mm-hmm. I thought it was it was pretty brutal just how Frank kind of does his no, 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 wait, 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 and then kind of is getting splattered by blood from uh, the execution of like micro but just sort of where the the soldiers turn their guns onto the children like it was really um it was really harrowing i thought um really full on i would say that could make um people feel really uncomfortable but it, it's kind of all connected with the guilt that frank has for gunner's death as well you know this idea of you know, we hear about him you know, leaving a man behind. You don't do that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Micro has fixed that. But I mean, you know, Frank is in a bad way with um, with his wounds uh, and so on. And ultimately, we see here Micro turning to Curtis for help. It's really interesting because we see, you know, Curtis, even though he's helping so many of the other veterans, he himself carries or holds um, a gun under his pillow as well when uh, Micro goes to his apartment for help. And we get some, again, a bit more goriness here um, with him pushing the arrow that Gunner had originally shot him uh, with uh, through Frank's shoulder. I, I thought this was real kind of great production. It, re- it looks so real. Absolutely. Um, but, but from all of this, I think, you know, Curtis really starts to question Micro about the point of this vendetta. What is it going to achieve? Mm-hmm. How is it going to help Frank? Um, you know, he blames the current condition for that Frank sees himself in uh, on micro as well. So I, I thought this was a really kind of full on in your face opening here. Absolutely. Uh, and in particular, I thought the, that homecoming dinner that they were having uh, a Thanksgiving dinner um, was pretty, pretty full on uh, and harrowing. I know we joked about you being micro last week, John. I think all of us were micro in that scene where Curtis is taking the arrowhead out of Frank. That was absolutely brutal as he's looking away from him going, is it over yet? 
How about now? Is it over now? Because I could not be standing beside the body of someone as an arrow is being forcibly removed from their body all the way through Frank's body as well. Just really tough scene. The one thing I loved, and, and as you say, that, that homecoming dinner or the, the dinner with all of the families around together, it is a really tough scene to watch. What I what made it helpful, I suppose, to, to not be as a, as difficult was you knew this was a situation that could never happen from the start. You knew it was something that Frank was there with David and David's family and his family. You knew the minute it started that it was a dream. It wasn't one of those ones where the rug gets pulled out from under you as an audience. You know from the minute it starts that it's a fever dream, which is great because otherwise it would be one of the most damaging scenes that they've ever put De- in the show. Definitely. And I, I think it's an evolution of Frank's uh, current dreams where he sees his his wife being shot you know mm-hmm. now it it's almost within his maybe subconsciousness or his feverish subconsciousness you know he's also bringing micro into that fold of of people that have been affected by you know everything that that's that's gone on so i i it's it's also a progression of of, of frank's own previous dreams and nightmares i suppose mm-hmm. yeah i i that scene even though I knew it was fake, or, or a dream, I should say not fake, because it was obviously quite real to Frank. Mm-hmm. Um, the evolution part, I, I enjoy it, because these what we see now is that Michael, against all odds, and all as much as Frank does not want it to be, Michael is becoming someone important to Frank. Yes. And actually, Michael's family is becoming someone important to Frank. Mm-hmm. You can see that throughout the episodes... He he originally started going over to uh, Micro's family as a threat to Micro, mm-hmm. but now that is not the case. Now is he's going over of his own volition. He still says it's to annoy Micro, but um, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, John Banthal's reaction to being bloodied um, is fantastic. Yeah. Like, it's some serious acting there. He is this cold-blooded killer in one scene, and then here you can actually see the pain rip across him as the blood is splattered from Micro's blood and the, the kid's blood, and, like... It's crazy. It's so it's so tough to watch, but a fantastic performance by Bernthal here. Yes. This is a career-defining performance from him, really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Really, really good. But it does, as you've mentioned, John, it does kind of lead on to our second point, which is about Curtis and the toll that this whole connection with Frank has taken on to. So Curtis running out of answers, really. Um, we see him after the fact, after questioning this vendetta that's been going on with Frank, we see him sitting down again with the support group that he's been involved in for a while. And he starts telling them one of these stories about this, about his life in the medical side of the army, something that we don't really hear much about. We've seen things like MASH uh, when we were younger, which talked about, you know, the toll that a war takes on people that are on the on the medical side. What you don't see is the kind of this this kind of training that he talks about where he's saying that the re- the way he learned how to do field operations is by that he was given a goat to take care of which he jokingly called Cassius I had to question what he was saying here by the way Chris you may know this from uh, from gaming uh, from online gaming he says the reason he called him Cassius was because the goat was a G-O-A-T which means greatest of all time just like Cassius Clay so uh, that was a nice little gag from, from Curtis he gets a good laugh from his support group but he's effectively saying he's given this goat to take care of and then they keep sending it out 
with more and more injuries and he has to run out and keep saving the life of this goat over and over again. That's a really cruel way to teach somebody how to do medical practitioning. Oh yeah, definitely. I thought this was really good to have some development of Curtis. You know, he's the, he, he's in the support group and you're there thinking, you know, he is this rock that, and that's what he has to project mm. to the other veterans. But he's also dealing with his own shit. Look, let's, let's be frank here. Yeah. Um, but you know, he, he's, to me, this was really interesting. This idea that Curtis in his own way, um, is just worn down. There's an attrition and there's a cost of, of what he's doing, putting a brave face on as the sort of leader of this support group. Yeah. It's, it's this idea that, you know, people like Curtis, um, who are helping other people have still got their own stuff to deal with. Mm -hmm. And gradually, you know, he's being worn down by O'Connor in the support group, who is really just countering everything he says. He, I think he's, there's a toll being taken, um, on him by the fact that, you know, he is reaching out and trying so hard uh, with Lewis, but he is just simply resistant to this help. You know, Lewis is almost looking at Curtis, a fellow uh, Marine and, and soldier, uh, as being part of this kind of this lie or betrayal that he personally feels. I think that's wearing him down. You know, I think Cassius the Goat is this metaphor for all of this, you know, and then out of the blue, um, Micro is with him here. Frank, um, he's having to save Frank. What's happened to Frank, one of his best friends and mm -hmm. comrades from, from when he was in the army. And all of this, uh, it, you really got this sense of him having quite a heavy burden here uh, and a lot of stuff to deal with. Um, for himself. And I, I think, again, that kind of links back to the gun under his pillow. You know, in that sense, he's no different from Lewis. Um, and of course, later on, he has to lie to Russo. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it all seems to build on, on Curtis. And I, I thought this was a real nice development of this character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's a piece in actual real life where, like, psychologists for shrinks will have their own shrinks and psychologists mm -hmm. because they you have to put listen to this horror uh, over and over and over again and that's going to affect you and it's the same here Curtis has his own issues he's feeling just as bad but he projects this this beacon of hope yeah. for these other people and every now and again like like any light sometimes it winks out mm -hmm. and it's just about the reignition of it and i think that's where we'll see the story arc of Curtis kind of continue, which is he's been this beacon of light for all these people. This has dragged him back down, but it will he will be re reignited, if you will. Yeah, uh, he'll become the beacon again. You hope you hope so. Yeah, yeah. We hope because it's a it's a it's a bad character of hope to lose. Yeah. Yeah, like it is, it is the, the, I suppose the commentary here is about any kind of support group. If you've ever been to an Al-Anon meeting or an Alateen meeting for Alcoholics Anonymous, the members of the group that are there or the leaders of the group that are there are effectively are people who feel that they are more comfortable out of being alcoholics or being drug addicts. Um, but they will always say that it just takes one moment for them to fall back in to the lowest point they've ever had in their life. And that's the guidance that they're trying to give to other people is every day, you have to fight to keep yourself above water, to keep your head above water. And that's the same kind of guidance that Curtis is saying. He's not saying he has the greatest life. 
He's certainly not as well adapted as Billy Russo is to coming back to the real world, setting up his own company and getting his own business. You know, um, he's working in insurance. You know, he's not he's not saying the world is fantastic when you get to my place. He's saying you have to fight. You have to talk these things out or else the whole world will get on top of you. And this is what's happening to Curtis here. The whole world is getting back on top of him again. So it is a, it's a really good other side of the character as you say John nice bit of development yeah definitely I think um, he definitely needs to get outdoors and I think with with that um, I think we can move on to point number three where if you go down to the woods today what are you going to find Chris well you're going to find a lot of bodies to be fair <laughs> or are you I'm not going to lie <laughs> no or bodies. are you but you're going to actually find no bodies but signs of a scuffle and uh, <laughs> some gunshot scuffle. wounds and some blood uh, yes, of course, I want to talk about uh, Stein and Dinah getting uh, a, a nice break uh, up in the, the, the woodlands. You know, as you would, you want to go for a nice walk on an autumn day, and actually turns out to be a forensic scene where Gunnar was shot and found dead. Mm-hmm. This was good. I really enjoyed this. Um, what we can see is Dinah is an actual investigatory agent. Mm-hmm. She's an agent who likes to investigate. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has some skills in that. I was definitely getting Misty Night flashbacks to, uh, to yes. some of her ability to piece all this together. It was very cool. So very much this is like Misty Night. This is the, the Will Grain and Hannibal. So she's just being able to see one or two things, a small break in the leaf uh, in a twig, and also the, a massive bullet hole in a tree, mm-hmm. and is able to piece together that there is things going on there. I'm very interested to see where the Death Squad turned up to. Mm. Like... Obviously, they were not there. Gunner was left, but they didn't. Um, Agent Orange did not take. He took the death squad, but did not take the body of Gunner. Leave no trace Just, behind of those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well it's more. Why do if you're going to do that? Why did you not take the the, the evidence of a killing? Mm-hmm. But I was wondering, did they? Because it wasn't I? I think it was. You know, they were saying this is a break. We have to kind of move fast because. It was local enforcement because Micro had called it in. So they had gotten there. But, I w- yeah, that's interesting. We actually don't know what's happened to the the soldiers that were part of that death squad that was sent to Gunner's shack to, to take him down. Mm. Um, but I was wondering, were they taken away by local law enforcement? I get you, yeah. Or has, you know, a, an elite sort of... SWAT team swooped down and taken them but then as you say Chris why would they leave Gunner? That's right we didn't actually see Gunner in the field we didn't see him lying there when Dinah arrived she was just pointed to the area where his body was and that's how she puts together this whole piece of of, uh, this investigation of the fact that Frank was there and the fact that there was many well-trained people after Gunner so um, so yeah we didn't actually see the bodies but that's a good point I I, I assume that they were taken away by um, by Agent Orange, but that may not be the case actually. Yeah, yeah but uh, overall, look, this is—it's a really—it's a good uh, forward momentum for Dinah's story. Mm-hmm. Definitely, she's piecing together what's happening, I mean, albeit at a slower pace. But that's more because of the evidence that she's working with. Mm-hmm. So this is the first break to show her something is going on on U.S. soil that doesn't seem. Right. Yeah, like she. You know what I mean. Yeah, because she says, "Who has the resources and the balls to do effectively this kind of operation on U.S. soil?" Exactly. And Stein does have my favorite line of the episode, where he's talking about, "Okay, Frank's in the wind now. How do you find him? How do you find dead Marines? They're not on Facebook or Tinder. I checked, which is just a great little moment from from Stein." 
I really want to see the deleted scene where Sim just swiping left and right on Tinder, going dead marine, dead marine, not a dead marine, not a dead marine, dead marine, dead marine, not a dead marine. It'd be amazing. Mm-hmm. It'd be fantastic. I love it. But speaking of um, swiping left and swiping right and partnering up, if you will, um, who wants to take us on to our, our next point? Yes, they partner up, but not for long. Lewis and O'Connor. Yeah, I'm really enjoying this storyline with Lewis. Uh, I'm kind of very interested, very intrigued to see... Is this a parallel storyline, you know, with very small links to to Frank Castle and the Punisher storyline were, you know, with with Curtis and so on. And obviously him reaching out to Russo at Anvil. But, you know, is this a separate parallel storyline to the adaptation of the Punisher as, as a graphic novel and, mm. and, and a comic book series? Or is there going to be some link up here uh, between Lewis and Frank? Are they kind of going to cross uh, paths at some point? I don't know. But, um, you know, we see here just a further insight into Lewis. You know, we have the Second Amendment rights outside the courthouse because there's a teacher in there who carried uh, their gun to school not to really go into Second Amendment rights with for the US, but Lewis makes that point of they lose more of their liberty every day. And for me, as a, a non-American, uh, I find that immensely, I don't know, strange that a, a, a teacher carrying a gun into their school and then being brought up in, in, in a courthouse, which, of course, they would be done in Ireland and the UK, um, that you would see that as... Um, a loss of liberty yeah. rather than a dereliction of their duty of bringing a lethal weapon into a, a school of people who are, are children or, or teenagers or, you know, people that you would want to protect. And of course, it's the perception of how you view that gun. You know, is it a symbol of protection or a symbol of violence and destruction? Mm-hmm. And I think probably my perspective uh, as a, a non-American, is one that, you know, these things cause way more trouble uh, than than they prevent. Um, and so it's an interesting thing uh, going on here. I totally agree with you, John. This this stuff that's going on with Lewis, it just feels like he's getting beaten down left, right and centre by people that just don't know what they're doing to his mind. It feels like he needs to have somebody present with him at all times to interpret what people are saying to him because he's just taking the wrong thing out of every situation. This cop at the uh, on the courthouse steps where he's being very specific about what he's saying to him. He's saying to him, there's only two of us here. We're not blocking any entrance. We're just handing out pamphlets. You don't need to get rid of us. Um, and the police officer is going, no, you need to do what I say. That riles Lewis up no end because he's effectively going, I protected this country in a war from people in a foreign nation. And now I'm being told by a cop who's who's using his power way more than he should that I need to I need to calm down or go or I go to prison. This is not what I protected my country for. Um, having someone like O'Connor, who is the most atrocious person I think I've ever seen in any of these shows. Forget about the villains. This is a guy who's effectively guiding Lewis into a really, really bad situation. And he's never even seen a day of battle. He's lying to him from the moment that he's met Lewis in the first place. All of this stuff with a character like Lewis, who is on tender hooks at all times, means he's like a powder keg. Yeah, and I mean, that part where O'Connor just slowly moves away from this mm. this increasingly um, argumentative tone between Lewis and, and the, the the police officer, 
Um, I just thought that was really a great capture of who and what O'Connor represents. That you know he's full of bombast. He's full of um, getting particular messages out, and then the policeman comes up. Uh, and he just slowly idles away, deserting Lewis as Lewis then is getting accused of reaching for the cop's gun, which he doesn't. And so again, mm-hmm. it's it, it's another kind of perspective here where um, it just creates mayhem uh, and chaos. You know, I completely agree with you on everything, and that's all. I'm not going to just finish with that. Obviously, that I, I need to participate, <laughs> but I agree essentially. Uh-huh. The writers were very clever with this, mm-hmm. okay? The policeman saying... A, B, the policeman uh, not just exercising his right, but overextending his right, mm-hmm. well, it, it is an interesting... It's an interesting allegory for today's modern world. The increased part where he goes, did you just reach for my gun? Oh. And obviously Lewis didn't. Uh, again, is a commentary on what is happening today in the world. The... Second Amendment rights, just the whole issue of protesting, lawful protesting, which Lewis is doing, mm-hmm. um, and he calls out that saying that, and obviously not, again, an allegory, commentary, if you will. Um, the piece about what's, who is inside the courthouse, again, a commentary. Yeah. Within this small scene, Lewis himself is a commentary on coming back from war and yeah. not being able to handle it. Yeah. Now, do I think Lewis will cross over with Punisher? Yes. I think we, what we are seeing here is the birth of a unique Nef- Marvel Netflix character mm-hmm. or a character from f- the Punisher. I don't know who, though. But the, like you are seeing a person who had special forces training, army training, we think Lewis was Special Forces. I'm not 100% sure. He, we never mentioned, but we do see that he's slightly twitchy. Mm-hmm. So I would assume he's he's seen some bad things. So we'd assume he was in the front line. Right, yeah. Kind of the things he's seen as an army. Uh, I was going to say an army brat, but that's the wrong terminology. Mm. As an army uh, soldier, as a, a serving man uh, within this uh, this machine, he's probably seen things. He's going to, I think they're trying to create this very fractured person mm-hmm. who is the anti Frank, if you will. Frank had all this training, all this stuff, and has become a anti hero, but still a hero. Yeah. I think what they're doing is showing that this this Lewis character could have easily been Frank, and he goes down this path. So he is the anti Frank. He's the anti Punisher. Yeah. He is going to be the guy with who has the training and end up going on rampages. He's going to use, he's going to kill people, yada yada yada. You're right, Chris, and we see his first victim here. And I thought it was going to be Curtis as he arrives before the support group set up. He has this conversation with Curtis about why he um, stopped him from getting the job at Anvil and dobbed him into Billy Russo. Uh, I thought there was going to be a knife pulled there from him. Uh, Curtis only just about seems to be able to calm him down, and then it's only when the other members of the support group arrive that he leaves after finding out that O'Connor's been lying to him about his service. I can only imagine what this does to a mind like Lewis, who has been constantly saying he's not getting the respect he deserves from what he did for the American country in that war, and then finds out that some lying POS 
is basically saying he won a medal for his time in the army. He knows the experience that all these people go have gone through and he's trying to guide everybody to pick up arms and join some kind of militia to take on the government for the treatment of vets and then you find out that he's just been stationed in in texas and not seen one day of war so um so this kid's mind is is a bit fractured as you say and he has been totally pushed over the edge to the point where he goes to visit o'connor yeah i mean his i suppose who he thinks is his bedrock in O'Connor. Mm. Uh, the only person who um, seems to align with Lewis's point of view, and that's because it's conscious of O'Connor to do that, you know, ultimately ends up being exposed by, by Curtis, who has bailed out uh, Lewis here. You know, as I say, O'Connor has completely uh, left Lewis in the wind, which goes against the Marine philosophy of n- never leave a man behind. Yeah. And... You know, he finds out that O'Connor really is a fraud and a bit of a shit stirrer, mm-hmm. really, which leads ultimately to a bit of a Barney at O'Connor's and then just the repeated stabbing by Lewis into the belly oh. uh, of O'Connor. Yeah. Um, you know, and then he loses it, you know, but is it a release of almost recognition of being back in the field, back in active duty, or is it a cry for help that Lewis chucks out there it's probably a bit of both but i mean yeah it was it was fairly visceral that um as well i thought oh yeah yeah definitely 100 percent. um one i hate o'connor mm-hmm. uh, the, just the, the character is made to is has been designed to be despicable oh absolutely um but again a commentary on in my opinion commentary on people the the lies people tell about themselves to basically shitster yeah like he he is he is a troll in manifested Mm -hmm. oh i i served in the army well you served in the army but you didn't see war you were in a little a forest down in uh, dallas yeah the death well one i lewis needs to kind of get back in shape a bit if 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 uh, o'connor nearly did nearly kind of like beat him at one point (laughs) o'connor does have army training yeah, but from the, the like, let's be honest. He's like, what? He's in his fifties. He's got yeah. that bit of a p- punch. I'm like, Lewis, come on now. You're Jill Sergeant. To give annoyed. Lewis some credit. He didn't go there to kill O'Connor. He did go there to confront O'Connor. So he's probably more overpowered by the emotional reaction to this. It wasn't a. This wasn't a plan. Maybe. Oh, you, 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 Lewis lover. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I mean, O'Connor is the one that draws the kitchen knife out, mm-hmm. I suppose, into yes. this and manages to get a cheap swipe across uh, Lewis's belly. Mm-hmm. So, but then, yeah, ultimately, it is back in combat mode, I suppose, for Lewis to some extent yeah. and fueled by rage of this lie that O'Connor has done. So, yeah. I mean, it's when Lewis gets that first stab in directly after that first stab, then he goes crazy and kills O'Connor stone dead. It's It's a a tough scene to watch and i think because o'connor is such a despicable character you're not supposed to you're not supposed to feel sorry that he's dead you're supposed to feel sorry about what's happened to lewis and how far he's been pushed and i think they did a really good job in in just that balance because that's a really difficult balance this kid's a murderer now Uh, after coming back from war he's now murdered somebody on home soil um but i still feel what have they done to lewis what what has broken his brain here speaking of broken brains Let's talk about Russo and his broken promises 
and the Judas goat. Uh, yeah, there you there go. We that go. sounds I more like it. I got my bleat in. Yeah, yeah there we are. Wow, very impressive, John. Yes, yes, Russo getting uh, very intimate with Dinah. You guys talked for quite a long time about the very intimate sex scene that was going on between Dinah and Russo last week. Um, this one's a little more intimate, isn't it? Well, it's um, certainly full on, and uh, it was a little a little tropey, actually. Uh, not during it, but after it, where um, he then feels betrayed. Um, I kind of felt this was, you know, really love it up and start to get that connection. And then he happens to flick through some of her files to see that she's looking for Frank. She's investigating Frank. Um, it felt a little... Tropey, you know, hot, intimate sex, followed by the feeling of betrayal. But nonetheless, um, it was good. I think we're certainly getting our uh, Marvel ab quota going on uh, in this in this show. I think um, so. <laughs> and what's better Marvel abs to look at than Billy Russo's, you know, <laughs> by Ben Barnes? I know, I know, I know what you're saying, John, uh, about this this kind of tropey little bit. But I don't think you're giving Billy Russo enough credit here. He knew from the first moment that Dinah talked to him back in that gun range. He knew exactly what she was looking for. I think he put himself in a situation to find out what information she knew here and then use their relationship to feel betrayed, especially by this uh, this moment at the end of the episode that we find out who he's working for. He's in exactly the right place that he wants to be in here. He's not in a relationship with Dinah for anything other than the information and the amazing sex that they seem to have every day no, she ab- says this is the second time in two days and it's amazing yeah. no absolutely um i i, I do yeah I, as you look through it then definitely it becomes less tropey and i i must say the great thing i think about this episode given the end is your there's so many moments through this episode where you or for me anyway as an audience watching it I was testing Russo. I was like, when he goes to see Curtis after Dina has reached out to him and said that she sees that Frank is alive, mm-hmm. I'm kind of there going, you know, he he's really confronts Curtis. He is, you can see him like looking at Curtis for his reaction, and I'm like going, oh my goodness, is is Curtis going to get killed by Russo here because? You know, Russo is not this person who we think he is. It, it was like all these tests through this episode leading up to the end. And it's like, and he doesn't. And he, he seems to have a genuine reaction with Curtis and, and seems to be really affected. Same when, you know, Dina reaches out to him. I was like going, okay, again, it's it's on a dock. It, it's in a remote location. I was there going, okay, is he going to kill her now? You know, is this where he turns? Where he's not the nice playful Billy Russo that we've kind of been led down with so far in in this series. And I think then, you know, finally when he meets up with Frank after he's been broadcasting, trying to connect with Frank, you know, following his information exchange with Dina, it's kind of like... Is he going to kill Frank there, you know, next to the sort of the, the pizza truck or, or the uh, the burrito truck? And each time he doesn't do it. And you're like going, OK, maybe this guy's really, really genuine. Like, hooray, brilliant. You know, uh, Danny Russo is one of the good guys and mm-hmm. he does great sex as well. So it's kind of like, way. And then it's like, no, you have just like gone into the car with, you know, one milky eyed Rawlins. Okay, you bastard, (laughs) you evil get. Yeah, completely. So I suppose 
they they had actually been broadcast when you look back in hindsight and i suppose hindsight is 2020 definitely you can see all of it and you're like oh it all makes so much sense now Mm -hmm. they did broadcast it back then but the way that ben barnes plays this character is fantastic so good He, he plays it as this Suave army ranger, whatever, like special forces guy who is great with the ladies and God's gift. And we get that. And he has that com- comical side. He has, but you know, he's a, he's good and he will, he cares about his brothers, yada, yada, yada. And then it turns out to be all fake. Yeah. And you're like, oh, oh, all those things you're saying, you're doing it from an arrogant side, not a comical side. Mm-hmm. You can actually think this. So, very quickly, on the uh, intimate scene with Dina, yeah, they, they're really going for it now. They, they, they're like, okay, we're going to go for the Game of Thrones <laughs> high level of uh, sex, HBO. We're going HBO level here now. <laughs> the finding of the... Well, the finding, the, the actual picking up the case file with Frank's name on it, which obviously she plays there to try and get a reaction from him. Uh, but the bit I found was like, I was like, oh, dude, you're butt naked here. Watch for paper cuts. <laughs> Seriously, that's a lot of paper. I do I, I do like, like oh. that Dina says to him, uh, put on some pants, you look really stupid right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, if you're going to have an argument, don't do it naked. <laughs> that is the moral of this uh, this that scene so far. I suppose it depends. <laughs> well, uh, yes, I suppose if you want to, when things are made up, uh, I suppose it cuts out a lot of time. <laughs> but anyway, I really enjoy this character. And um, again, don't want to be spoilery about who the character of Billy Russo is in the comics. More and more and more and more and more, this is where we are going towards. But I think they're going to do it in a unique yeah. way that will make it for unique for the Netflix. And this is the first step. Yeah, yeah. But I'm wondering as well, will they actually completely U-turn it? Okay, we find out that Rollins has something on Russo, and we'll actually have a redemption arc or a redemption point for Russo. So, like, Rollins is basically, for whatever reason, blackmailing Russo, has been for years, uh, has something holding over his head, and then we'll see that maybe Rollins will try and kill Frank, and we see Russo do the the ever tropey jumping in front of the bullet uh, as a redemption arc. Maybe. It's like, maybe. Like, what really surprised me about these scenes in this episode here is when he meets Frank on the on the docks and again I totally thought they're they're best friends they're finally getting back together and finally meeting up with each other nothing bad goes down he gives him an option here to get out of the states he's going to give him a new passport a new identity get him sorted get him out of New York and what really surprised me was that final scene is Russo standing there with all of his men pointing guns at where they think Frank is going to arrive from they are intended to kill him that's exactly what's going to happen. If Frank turned up to that moment, they were going to kill him. That wasn't going to be a moment where Russo was going to save him. He's working for Rollins and is going to kill Frank Castle. Um, that's the bit that kind of shocked me at the end of the episode. I thought it was kind of a, you know, let's meet up in a coffee shop next time, Frank. And then he drives him to Rollins thinking that he's taken him to the airport or something, you know, or knocks him out and takes him captive and tries to convince him to work with them, something like that. But yeah, there was definitely a, a, a kill zone being set up for Frank Castle. Definitely. Like, Russo says, your family's gone, Frank, but you're still my brother. I mean, like, 
this guy has no shame. I mean, mm. that's when I was like, okay, well, he's not killed Dina, he's not killed Curtis, and he's not killing Frank here and now. So, and he's just said that. Yep. And then, as you say, it's like he gets in and says, he ain't coming. And Roland turns around and goes, why didn't you kill him when you met him earlier in the day? Mm. And it's kind of like, yeah, Russo, that would have been easier. Um, and, but like, it is building that trust. It's maintaining that. I mean, you know, Russo does all the right stuff, uh, with regards to, you know, that kind of marine code in a sense yeah. in, in that first meeting to really try and cement the trust with Frank after this time away from one another. Uh, and let's be honest, it would have been a very short season if, uh, Basically, Billy killed Frank right there and then. In episode six. In episode yeah, six, yeah. like, and that's the end of Punisher. And it fades to black. Rather than that infamous fade to black uh, episode uh, or season finale or I should say actual show finale of The Sopranos, uh, we get it here and that's it. And actually, all you see is episode uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. It's just more black. That would be <laughs> what ultimate troll or troll, I should say. They would never have done that. Never have done it. No, it's uh, but I do love this moment. I do love these scenes with Russo. Uh, I think that's our top five points. Um, one really quick note from me about the episode: Billy Russo's car is one of the most amazing looking cars I've ever seen. That's a Rolls Royce Wraith. I saw Ben Barnes over on Twitter saying how excited was I uh, about knowing that Billy Russo drove that car event i get to drive that car <laughs> it is a beautiful beautiful looking car very very impressive any other notes for the episode guys nothing from my side i'm finding punisher very light 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 on the uh, easter egg mm. so far i'm searching hard a lot of eggs but not the right type yes not made of chalky but yeah, no notes from me either. Um, and I know we did initiate book watch for most of the first five episodes. Uh, the book that was being read again in this episode was um, Life of Pi. I think this just indicates how short a window of time we're, we're watching and what's happening because it does take a couple of weeks usually to read a book. So, um, so Life of Pi is sitting on the table, which is now being read by um, David's wife. So it's going around the family. Yeah, and it should probably be food watch. There's an awful lot of food being consumed here. Absolutely. I think uh, one of our followers are on twitter has pointed out that frank likes a good meal i'm waiting for the punisher cookbook like the wonderful one that they did for the walking dead i'm waiting for the, uh, the punisher <laughs> cookbook where we see all these amazing meals that frank eats probably just to keep himself bulked up i suppose right yeah absolutely but chris do you defend the sixth episode of the punisher the judas goat I do, if not only for the uh, punishing sex scene, the punishing reveal at the end, and the punishing death midway through. It's getting there, lads. They, they're bringing all these different stories that I what, couldn't see how they were going to thread them together. Now, I'm still not sure how they're going to thread Lewis's storyline in, but overall, the Billy storyline was a nice reveal. It was a nice double cross that uh, mm. you could kind of see coming, but actually, no, none of us did because we wanted to assume the best of intent. And then looking back in hindsight, you see the, the, the things that he did and why he's done them, which is I really enjoy. Dean, the storyline, I'm really enjoying. Um, I, I think what's going to end up happening more and more is they're going to need to integrate her deeper into this. At the moment, she's a peripheral character. Think Punisher is a bit of a slow burn for me, in my own personal opinion. Mm -hmm. But it has all the right things there. It's just, yeah, it's getting there. It's, 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 
trucking along, if as they say. Uh, but I want to see where they take it. I want to see where episode 7 takes me, especially with this reveal at the end. So, John, on my defence, I have to ask you, do you defend this episode? I do defend this episode. I give this 4.5 Judas Billy Goats out of 5. Meh. Yes, exactly. Meh. Um, that's probably a sheep oh, again. Goodness. But anyway, it's really, really good. I mean, I actually found this this episode really quite heavy in many respects. In a good way. I think it really touched a lot of hard, deep issues um, in this, whether it's from that opening scene, whether it's from Lewis's storyline, and even just the whole look at Billy Russo moving through Frank's immediate life by contacting Curtis or his unknown life with Dina Madani and con- you know being involved with her. That whole then reveal, you know, Ben Barnes portrays Billy Russo so charmingly um, and as a result, you want to believe that he is okay. And for me, this episode, each of these stages, I was thinking, okay, is Russo going to reveal his true intentions here? Is he going to do it? You know, is he going to kill or kidnap Madani? Is he going to do it with Curtis? Is he going to do it with Frank? And each time I kind of came away going, okay, he didn't. And it really reduced his threat. And then bang, right in at the end, He's there with Agent Orange, um, you know, really working the the field ar- around uh, trying to get Frank dead. And it was just like, wow. And, um, you know, even though it was signposted, you were playing this character so well to make you kind of, you know, he's saying all the right stuff, doing all the right things, being all the right kind of people to the right people. And it, in the end, it's all just a cover. So, you know, hats off. I really enjoyed this episode, even though I thought it was quite heavy. Um, and yeah, I'm really intrigued to see where Lewis goes. I would love for Lewis to somehow redeem himself and, and cross over with Frank and, and get integrated in some way in that way. Um, but nonetheless, I'm really enjoying that. I think it's a really important story uh, there going on, at least in parallel for the moment. Uh, but yeah, this was a really good episode for me, definitely. Derek, do you defend this episode of The Punisher? I absolutely defend this episode of The Punisher. When I was watching this series straight through, this is the one that just jumped out at me and made me realize how important this show is, The Punisher as a whole. Uh, these whole scenes with... Lewis were fantastic. Uh, what we also are seeing is Frank developing a brand new family, that opening scene where he's sitting down to dinner with his new family, which is David and the Liebermans, uh, along with his old family who've been murdered. Um, that's effectively one of the signs that he's got a new family, where he talks about Billy, it's all about he now has that family as well. Um, there's some great moments in this episode. It, it's one of the most interesting ones to watch for me, uh, that turn of Billy Russo. I wish it wasn't so. I think Ben Barnes has been fantastic uh, so far in the series. And now knowing that he's the bad guy, it's a tough kind of flip to, to watch. But uh, but we'll see how it plays out for the rest of the season. Um, I do love Madani as well. I think herself and, uh, and Stein's uh, investigative work going on. It's nice to see that. They're not just sitting in an office reading papers and coming to conclusions. Her being out in the field and seeing what she can do investigating and finding out that Frank must have been involved in this situation. That's very interesting. Yeah, there's some some good stuff to come in the future for these episodes, but a definite defend from me. I think it's time to get on to our feedback for the episode. 
Yeah, through on our Facebook uh, group, uh, we got some feedback through from Alice Bowler, um, who says, I'm so happy for your podcast because it's helping me pace myself. If it wasn't for you guys, I would have binged the season already. One random comment. I don't follow the comics. Everything I know about the MCU comes from Netflix. That being said, I don't trust Billy at all. When he had the conversation with Curtis at Frank's grave and Curtis had that little slip up, Billy was on that right away. I got the impression he's looking for Frank. I don't trust him knowing he's a future baddie makes perfect sense. Love the podcast and your takes on all the shows. Stay cool. Thank you, Alice, for that. Um, Really, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think it's only for me... I think I wanted to believe this was, you know, a Fox Mulder moment for me. I wanted to believe that that Billy was was good, and mm-hmm. um, that's a really interesting point that you you make there about that little slip from Curtis that Billy was kind of onto it right away. I miss that, so I'll definitely want to go back and look at that. But it makes sense, certainly when I saw um, Billy in the, the vet support group room and he was talking to Curtis about whether he knew anything about Frank, the, the look on Billy's face really, it was so well done by Ben Barnes in terms of I really got that sense that he was kind of analyzing him deeply for the response that, mm-hmm. that Curtis gave him to see whether Curtis was lying to him. So there's definitely that aspect of, of Billy Russo that is really uh, made to come across from Ben Barnes. Thanks so much for that feedback, Alice. It's really good to hear from you on that. We are doing Punisher a little bit more slowly than we normally would for our Defenders podcasts, but hopefully you've been enjoying going weekly with the show. For our next piece of feedback, it's the return of the Luke Cage swear jar, Bell. Uh, Salim Kisler says, Mother... I can't be the only one who thought that after the closing reveal. Does anyone else think Agent Orange might be the jigsaw of this universe? They did zoom in pretty close on his disfigured eye at the end. This also explains why Russo was looking for Frank on the radio before hearing it from Madani. Really interesting point, Salim. There is a character called William Rollins in the comics who looks exactly like this version of Agent Orange in, in the Punisher TV show. So I don't know whether they're merging the two characters. There may be. That might be a way they're doing it. But definitely William Rollins does exist in the comic books. Uh, yeah, you weren't the only one that thought Mother f- as uh, Russo was revealed as the bad guy. Yeah, good spot on noticing that Billy is transmitting his radio broadcast before hearing it officially from Madani that um, Frank is still alive. Yeah, that really kind of ties into the fact that Agent Rawlins, Agent Orange, had probably mentioned to to Billy Russo he had seen the face of the ghost there um, at uh, Gunner's Woodland Retreat. Mm -hmm. I would really want to go to that retreat. Um, But moving on, uh, Tina Brown says, called it, according to the trope of the best friend turned evil, it had to be him or Curtis. And let's face it, Curtis is clearly an angel. He lost a leg, he's a counsellor, scraping by and still fighting the good fight. Plus, if they were both good, it would only be a matter of time before they teamed up with Frank and who could seriously stop them then? Yeah. I have to agree. Although I would... Well, A, I hate tropes, but it's a good trope. In this twist, I suppose. Um, they're a trope for a reason. They work. Uh, I was actually hoping, at one point, all of them would be evil, because that would be amazing. Yeah, that would be, actually. Now that Tina says it, think about this. That would have been an amazing ending, having uh, Curtis, Frank, and Billy all been have been good, and then team up, uh, like, walking down the hallway, kind of... Mm-hmm. 
Like that's the final <laughs> like massive fight. That would have been brilliant. It would have been great. It would have been great. Maybe all hopes not lost for Russo. Let's see. We'll see as the rest of the season goes on. Thanks so much for your feedback uh, for these episodes. Really good to hear from you. If you want to send in any email feedback, you can email us at feedback at defenderstvpodcast.com. A voicemail, just go to defenderstvpodcast.com and click the send voicemail button or pop over and join us on our Facebook group where you can go into any of the spoiler posts for our future recordings. Uh, just pop in there and leave your notes at facebook.com slash groups slash defenderstvpodcast. Yes, and please, as always, come on over and share the love. Subscribe, rate, and leave a review of our podcast over on any of your good micro or evil Russo broadcasting podcasts. Uh, it's great to have you on board. So with that, let's wrap up our war journal for this episode. We'll be back with our review of The Punisher Episode 7 Crosshairs next Friday, the 22nd of December. This is your Christmas gift from us and don't forget we'll be back every week from then on guys let's go i have got crosshairs on the episode called crosshairs i gotta go watch this <laughs> excellent thanks so much for listening we'll talk to you again next time absolutely thank you as always for joining us and we will speak with you next time bye bye this is raven to blackbird signing off bye And what better Marvel abs to look at than uh, Daniel Russo's? <laughs> Daniel, so I, I can't I, comment I, I, on the abs. Billy Russo. Who's Daniel Russo? I don't know. <laughs> oh, isn't he the karate kid? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, Dinah, Dina. Um, her storyline. Is it Dinah or Dina? It's Dina Madani. That's why we keep calling her Dinah. <laughs> Dina. Mm, Dinah. Do <laughs> mm, you see I'm hungry now? <laughs> yeah. Mm hmm.